So the year is 1998. Who here remembers 1998? There's a, a few, almost everybody, except for Dave Kelly for some reason does not remember 1998. <laughs> the president is standing at that familiar lectern and addressing the nation on the eve of what amounts to be a global crisis in 1998. Here's what the president said. I address you tonight not as the president of the United States, not as the leader of a country, but as a citizen of humanity. We are faced with the very gravest of challenges. The Bible calls this day Armageddon, the end of all things. That's how the speech began. And of course, the speech goes on from there. And you're probably wondering at this point, especially if you did raise your hand as being someone who remembered 1998, when did Bill Clinton say that? When did Bill Clinton refer to things as the end of all things? Well, it might be helpful to know here that this was said by the fictional commander-in-chief played by actor Stanley Anderson in the 1998 film Armageddon. <laughs> and I have to say, the Anderson, the Anderson administration must have had, uh, it must have been popular, first of all, and it must have had quite a few challenges because the same actor played the president two years earlier in the movie The Rock. So you might have quite a few little challenges there. But the president's remarks are made as a team is ready to confront and hopefully destroy a comet the size of Texas that was headed toward the earth before humanity goes the way of the dinosaurs. That's the hope. Of course, that's entertainment. It's edge-of-the-seat kind of stuff. The film's rather silly, though. But the end, the end of the world scenarios like this or other ones, whether it's the Mayan calendar running out in 2012, it's Y2K, or whatever you might imagine being an end-of-the-world type scenario. These, these get our attention, these end-of-the-world scenarios. They get our attention. At least that's what the preparedness industry would hope, or even those guys selling gold and silver coins. And of course, there's certainly no shortage of survivalist books or internet web pages that are dedicated to this kind of thing. But knowing that each one of us here this morning, each one of us lives day-to-day Somewhere between readiness and REM. You're like, what? REM? You know, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. We live somewhere between that. Cautious planning or just resigning ourselves to whatever might come. The question for us comes, how should we respond amidst end-of-the-world talk? This is going to be one of those sermons. How do we respond? What does the Bible have to say about the end of the world, and particularly here in our text this morning? The prophet Amos contributes to the conversation by way of a coming day of the Lord. We hear that expression in verse 18 of our reading. It's an expression used amongst the biblical prophets and then picked up in the New Testament. That day, that day of the Lord, is a reference to a coming time when God will intervene. It's a time when God will intervene powerfully, unmistakably, and presumably for the benefit of God's people. That's what they mean when they start talking about the day of, day of the Lord, or at least that's what the popular identity or understanding is. John Goldingay comments on this in his commentary. He says, The day when Yahweh's purpose is fulfilled and people experience the fullness of Yahweh's blessing, that experience would naturally include the putting down of people who attack them, who attack God's people. So you can imagine if you're of ancient people, and you're imagining the day of the Lord, you're picturing that this is the day that whatever shackles, whatever oppression, whatever's been thrown on you, it's all coming off because God's going to intervene and finally come to town and kick some serious tail, right? 
That's what they're imagining at this point. It's a salvation moment. And God's people imagine themselves as full beneficiaries of what is coming. But Amos here is going to turn that on its head. Amos's audience is expecting coming salvation. But the coming day of the Lord is actually heralding their destruction, is what the prophet says. Woe! Woe! W-O-E. Woe. In the first part of verse 8, we had a conversation about woe before the service. First part of verse 18. And subsequent questioning of their motivation in the second part of verse 18 say as much at this point. The coming light they imagine will instead be very real darkness. We see that in the latter part of verse 18 and in verse 20 as well. And if that wasn't troubling enough, verse 19 paints a very vivid image of the sheer terror that's to come to these folks. In that picture of one who is chased by a lion, right? Now, if you've ever gone on YouTube, which you know I have, if you've ever gone on YouTube and you ever look up, like, people hunting lions, there's a couple videos where they miss on the shot. It's, like, absolutely terrifying. Like, a lion is charging you, they miss, and the lion's still charging you. And as a viewer, you're like, oh boy, what's going to happen? Then the camera kind of goes blurry. You, you guess. But being chased by a lion only to be confronted by a bear, right? You're running away from a lion. You go, ah! And there's a bear right there. Now look at bear attack videos, right? Merge those together. That's the terror. That's unsettling, of course. It's as, as unsettling as resting for a moment. Ah, got away from that lion, that bear. Let me stick my hand on this wall. And a snake bites you. That's what the prophet says. That's how unsettling that is. There's no relief to be found. But why no relief? And why does God come in judgment and with consequence to this people who are supposedly the people of God? Why would God come in this way to them? Why would darkness come instead of light? It has something to do with the wrong-headed pursuits of this community. Worship was meant to be transformative, to shape the community as they, as we hear in Judges chapter 5.11, repeat the triumphs of the Lord, or as other translations say, rehearse the mighty acts of God. It's supposed to transform them as a people. But instead, as we heard in Micah 6 last week, and now we hear right here in Amos, the community's worship has been reduced to mere motions. It's become lip service. They were doing stuff, yes, religious stuff, but they weren't acting justly. The corrective going forward is the charge in verse 24 from Amos. But let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Of course, that charge was a favorite of the famous American preacher, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You can see a little write-up that talks about the piece of art that we're using in worship this morning. There is your insert. But he quotes Amos quite frequently. In fact, this same verse shows up in the I Have a Dream speech just shortly before he launched into the section from which the title is drawn. He says there, no, no, we are not satisfied and will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. The prophetic voice speaking once more to lift us from our own inactivity and hypocrisy. That's what King's hoping for. That's what Amos was hoping for as well. It challenges our notions of our own coming blessing amidst unjust conduct. The same in the ancient world and the same in our modern world. Returning back to Golden Gate at this point, 
Golden Gate observes here the relationship between Yahweh and the people can survive the absence of singing and offerings. It can't survive the absence of the faithful exercise of authority, which needs to roll. It won't survive that. There's an old song. You like old songs? For some of you, it might not be an old song, right? You're like, Jimmy, that's not an old song. But Bill and Gloria Gaither. You know Bill and Gloria Gaither? I think I've shared before, I went to one of their shows one time, those concerts they do. We took my mom, and I saw six people get carried away in aid cars. I mean, nothing like passing out during a Gaither concert, right? That's a rousing event. But their old song, The King is Coming, it's a song that looks at that future day of God's arrival. The chorus there, of course, oh, the king is coming, the king is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding, and now his face I see. Oh, the king is coming, the king is coming. You got it now? The king's coming, all right? Praise God, he's coming for me. It's a song of victory. The day of the Lord says the king is coming as well. But Amos says that he's coming for me, but perhaps not in the way I might be hoping, not in the way I'm expecting, or have convinced myself. If that raises in us any sense of the need for correction in our lives, which of course is the hope of the prophet, Jesus says more in our gospel reading. Jesus says, be ready. Be ready. Now, ESPN posted a story online this past week, and I don't know if you, if you look at ESPN, if you see that website, but they posted a, a story about Art Jimmer, uh, make sure, right? Jimerson. Art Jimerson, a now retired boxer who 30 years ago participated in UFC 1. So you think about all the UFC uh, fights, he was in the very first UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship tournament. And Jimerson was an accomplished pugilist at the time, entering the UFC tournament, having won 15 straight boxing matches and a possible coming match with one of the big names in boxing history. He was going to possibly fight against Thomas Hearns. Jimerson was the real deal. He was a real deal. He's a real boxer. The guy had won bouts, and he knew it as much as anyone. This was going to be easy money, is what Jimerson thought. Well, today, UFC matches look quite different than those earliest versions. In the original events, which were run as tournaments, fighters representing individual disciplines would be pitted against one another. Unlike the mixed martial artists of today, at the time, you might see a sumo wrestler fight against someone who uses a form of kickboxing. Actually, you would see that. That was the very first match in UFC history. A sumo wrestler fighting a kickboxer. The sumo wrestler lost. And he lost three teeth in the process. Two of them were stuck in the kickboxer's foot. Jimerson entered the cage confident that his skills would prevail. So confident that he wore just one glove. He had one boxing glove on. I'm going to use it to jab with, and then I'm going to knock him out. That was his thoughts. That ungloved hand was going to do some serious damage. Now, my, my brief foray in the martial arts, and it was brief, included a number of memorable lessons. Like, don't do that again. <laughs> One of which was this. Most fights end up on the ground one way or another. So you better have some idea what to do when the bodies hit the floor. Jimerson's opponent was an expert on the ground. He's a black belt and a member of the legendary Gracie family. 
Horace Gracie was a master practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. By the time the match ended, at 2 minutes and 18 seconds, Jimerson had tapped out, the first ever to do so in a UFC tournament. Even more than that, the accomplished boxer never threw a punch. Never threw a punch. Not one punch. Jimerson wasn't ready for what was coming. He wasn't ready. This part of Matthew's gospel that we draw our gospel reading from, late in chapter 24, but our reading then in chapter 25, these are stories that are designed to ready Jesus' followers, to ready us for today as we look forward to the day when, as we hear in chapter 24, particularly in verses 36 through 44, that Jesus is coming again. It's intended to be part of our discipleship, part of our training to equip us to be ready. And as Christians throughout the centuries have bore witness to in the Apostles' Creed, we recognize that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. It's something that's been part of our witness through the centuries. And here, Jesus' story of the ten young women has half the group not ready for the coming bridegroom. They're not ready. They come up short on oil. N.T. Wright here points out that this story is rooted in the Jewish tradition of contrasting wisdom and folly, being sensible or being silly. Lady wisdom and mistress folly is, is where it fall in the larger tradition, Jewish tradition. Hearers are to consider which they want to be. Do you want to be silly, foolish, and unprepared? Or do you want to be sensible? Do you want to be wise and ready? In every age, there's the temptation to be the former while falsely imagining ourselves to be the latter. Returning back to N.T. Wright's work, he says, in this new era, no less than in the unique time of Jesus and his first followers, we need as much as ever the warning that it's easy to go slack on the job, to stop paying attention to God's work and its demands, to be unprepared when the moment suddenly arrives. I think we know in our hearts that's true. It's easy to fall slack. It's easy to fall behind and be un unprepared, to not be paying attention, to not be living in that place we're supposed to be living. But not just unprepared. Craig Keener notes in his work that a lack of preparation by the young woman in the story would have been an offense to the bride and groom. That's the cultural reference point here. It would have been an insult, insult to the entire family that this wedding was celebrating. The expression, I do not know you, that we hear there in our gospel text was sometimes used when one wished to treat others as strangers and to keep them from approaching because of their offensiveness. Keener goes on to observe, one stays alert by living in such a manner that one would have no cause for shame if one's master did come unannounced, since he may in fact do so. He goes on to say that Paul may echo the warning against living an unexpected self-serving life here, and that echo shows up for us and 1st Thessalonians. Well, the title of this sermon here draws on a 1969 song by Christian rock pioneer Larry Norman. Does anybody know Larry Norman? You know, do you, are you familiar with Larry Norman's work here? Is there a few? Just in the very back. Apparently the back row knows Larry Norman. Oh, okay, we got a few up here. Okay. I was going to say, that's, that's a testimony to Larry Norman's work. But Larry Norman uh, did a song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. DC Talk covered the song in the mid-90s on their Jesus Freak album. Do you know the Jesus Freak? Does anybody know the Jesus Freak album here? 
The same person just raised his hand in the very back there. <laughs> All right. It was the opening song to the 1972 film Thief in the Night. Do you know that, do you know that movie? We tested this out on a test group earlier today to see if they knew, and nobody knew it. So uh, it looks like this stuff hasn't got to the Presbyterians yet. We can show this film later, and it'll be new to you. Of course, if you haven't heard the song, it sings of Jesus having come and there being no time to change one's mind. It's the whole being left behind. There's a whole series of books called the Left Behind Books. Uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins uh, wrote um, that cover this type of stuff. But whether or not the picture that is formed here is accurate to the text, a.k.a. that Left Behind series and the framework of this song by Norman, I suppose that's all debatable. But the sentiment of wishing we'd all been ready, that is a sentiment that is well attested to in Scripture. And in our text today, it shows up. To be people who aspire and work for justice and righteousness. And as the Apostle Paul will write, and this is that reference that 1 Thessalonians passes before, let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. That's Paul's first century words that he offers to believers who are wondering about the end of the age, of what's coming next, the end of the world. He says they'd be ones who love, who hope, who hold on to salvation, who hold on to the work of Jesus Christ in their life, who encourage one another and build each other up, that these are the daily practices. I worked at McDonald's many, many decades ago, and during that time we had a group of fellows who'd show up in the lobby, and they'd bust open their study Bibles, and they'd have conversations about the end of the world, and they'd be charting out the end times, and they're drawn from Daniel and Revelation and pulling parts of Ezekiel and Matthew 24. They're all over the place. And they're grabbing all these texts and they sit there every day and they would talk about these texts over and over and over again. And there's a sense that that would feel like preparation. But that's not preparation. That's not preparation. That's just mapping the landscape. Preparation here is to be ones who live a life that seek justice and righteousness. That that's what we're about. Friends, may that be our story of our lives today and every day, this day and forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace for us. We thank you that even in the lives that we live, in the, in the moments that we find ourselves in, and as we hear a word from an ancient prophet that very much speaks to a modern condition, Lord, we too know that we can easily fall slack and begin to imagine all kinds of blessing for ourselves while not affording the same to our, our neighbor. So Lord, help us to be those people who are generous and kind and loving. Lord, make us into that community, that beloved community that welcomes people into that beloved position with their God and their Savior, with their Creator. Lord, we trust you and we love you. We thank you for your grace. We pray that you'd grant us the grace and wisdom we need to live this day and each and every day. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.